I'm Aaron Hinkin. Welcome to Life in the Balance, a monthly radio program here on WYPR that blends together conversations about public policy and first-person accounts from the people affected by those policies, for better or worse. Our topic today, food deserts and food insecurity. According to the Maryland Food Bank, 228,000 households in Maryland are food insecure. What does that mean? It means they often don't know where their next meal is coming from. And when it comes to food insecurity in the city of Baltimore, check out these statistics. According to this year's Baltimore City Food Report, 23% of Baltimore City residents live in areas considered food deserts. That's almost a quarter of the city. When you bring race into the equation, it becomes clear that food insecurity disproportionately affects black communities in the city, with 31% of black residents living in a food desert compared to only 8% of white residents. The repercussions, when people can't afford access to nutritious food, they're far more liable to suffer chronic diseases. According to a recent Hunger in America survey of all food insecure households, 58% have got at least one member with high blood pressure and 33% have at least one member with diabetes. This is an insidious and intractable problem, the kind of problem that doesn't go away on its own, not without advocacy and activism on the part of those affected by it. One of those activists is here with us on the program today. His name is Asar Daniels. He's a lifelong resident of Baltimore, Sandtown, Winchester area. He knows of food insecurity firsthand. Asar Daniels is a 2017 Open Society Institute fellow. He's a speaker and advocate for healthy eating and founder of Greater Mandaman Empowerment Project, G-M-E-P. And we're going to hear more about that. Asar Daniels, thank you for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. How did the issue of food deserts and food insecurity become a priority for you? Well, you know, growing up in West Baltimore, um, growing up in Baltimore in general, um, you notice that there's systemic issues with finding good food, healthy food. And... Um, it hasn't always been like that, you know. Um, so in recognizing those issues, um, and my focus has always been on health and wellness, one major solution to that is urban agriculture and education. You know? So, and from there, that births the Greater Mondawmin Empowerment Project. We're going to talk about those initiatives, but first, let me just have you paint a picture of, like, What's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner on a given day if you live in a food desert in Baltimore City? Where can you go? What's on the shelves? <sighs> unfortunately, unfortunately, um, what's on the shelves is very bleak. A lot of foods that are not really foods, they're junk foods, they're food-like substances that we eat, often eat. And uh, we think that they're good choices, but we don't. we have very limited choices. So you go to the corner store and say you're a young child and you start off your morning with a soda, some sort of sugary drink, then you have some sort of sugary um, muffin or bun or something like that, you know, and a candy bar and you're on your way to school, you know. Um, horrible way to start your day. Unfortunately, uh, we have a lack of fresh fruits and vegetables in our, in our environments, in our neighborhoods, and a lot of the grocery stores don't exist anymore. Um, unfortunately, um, the Arabers, that culture, that's not around like it used to be. For folks in, who aren't uh, longtime Baltimore people, the Arabers are, or were. They were uh, people who bring around fruits, vegetables, and uh, sometimes other 
things like meat, like fish. When I was a child, they would sharpen knives, but they would bring them to your neighborhood, to your doorstep. On horse-drawn carts. On horse-drawn carts, yeah. you know. How about your own family when you were a kid? Is that what you had for breakfast when you were a kid? No, I was not. I'm fortunate to uh, have parents that, especially my father's side, um, they were sharecroppers from Georgia. Hmm. And um, so that agrarian culture was still in my family. You know, um, it was an emphasis on even if we didn't have enough money to still prepare a home cooked meal. You know, um, still prepare a wholesome breakfast. But um, it's from that upbringing, from those lessons and those stories, from that that sharecropping era, um, even though as uh, oppressive as it was, there was a lot of jewels that can be utilized from that era of survival, of um, empowerment, um, things that can be applied to what we call food deserts now or food apartheid. And your dad, I understand, is uh, sort of specializes in uh, herbalism. Yes, yes, yes. And um, herbalism, he's a blacksmith, um, an engineer, hmm. you know, um, truly a renaissance man. Um, as many people were during that time in order to survive, you had to have multi, you have to be multitask, have multi different kinds of skills to survive. But the influence of agriculture is that it's not just growing food, it's a whole infrastructure around it. You uh, are maybe an exception to the rule then with folks who came from uh, an agrarian life uh, as opposed to maybe folks whose family has been in Sandtown, Winchester neighborhood for multiple generations and just sort of this has become sort of a general, this has become sort of a generational way of eating, the local convenience stores and what's there, what's not there. Yes, it is. um, It's an issue that has to do with... um, the difference between the elders that are in our communities and not passing, we're not always, we don't always get those lessons passed down to the younger generations. Um, From the destruction of family, of broken family bonds, but also just what's going on in the community, not having those grocery stores. When I was younger, there was a lot of community gardens, uh, excuse me, not community gardens, backyard gardens. Mm -hmm. A lot of people had backyard gardens. Um, A lot of people grew vegetables. And uh, there was fruit trees in people's backyards, figs, apples, pears. You saw this all over West Baltimore. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't rare to see somebody collecting walnuts, you know, to make a to make some sort of preserve a pie. You know, this is these were things that you saw regularly in Baltimore. Asar, tell me about this program, Greater Mandalman Empowerment Project (GMEP). What is it? How does it work? What do you guys do? Uh, well, the Greater Mondama Empowerment Project focuses around urban agriculture, health and wellness, and culinary arts in Sandtown, Winchester, right beside Gilmore Homes, at a farm called Tubman House Farms. And that's my major partner in this project. And at Tubman House Farms, we do a lot of youth education around urban agriculture. So we get into STEM, and um, they get into actually building the actual farm. Been there now for three years. Um, almost going on four, and for every summer we've conducted a young farmers program where the youth will learn how to grow food, learn how to prepare it into tasty dishes, you know, um, and also learn about the health benefits of the food. And they literally would work for the summertime, so they would get an educational stipend. And um, we've been fortunate this year to go from our enrollment from 12 youth to 22 youth um, this summer. Um, and also including young adults this summer because we expanded it 
um, through Tubman House, we did a freedom school, Feed Them Freedom, where we were able to give them more than just urban ag- agriculture, but we were able to give them the mm, the background, the culture of why we grow food, the history. Yeah. What, paint a picture of this farm. What, what do you guys grow there? How big is it? What was it before it was a farm? Ah, good point, good point. So before it was a farm, um, they were actually abandoned lots and, and vacant houses through the leadership of Marshall Eddie Conway and Dominique Stevenson. Um, back in about 2014, uh, we literally occupied a abandoned house there and used it as a base of locations for food giveaways, book bag giveaways, clothing drives in the community. You know, um, and, and you got sufficient cooperation from the city to be able to pull this off. Uh, well, we did have a, some hiccups. You mm-hmm. know, we had some hiccups and there was some pushback. But with community support, um, community support was overwhelming because it was uh, we were fulfilling a need. Um, with that support, we were able to push through, and we're still pushing through now. What do you want the city to know that they're doing well? What do you want them to know that they need to do better in terms of mm-hmm. food security, food deserts, food equity? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, first, uh, support local agriculture. Um, helping to make local agriculture um, available to those that want to do it and help that food get distributed to those that need it. Um, bring back more grocery stores that carry quality foods like um, Fresh at the Avenue Market. That's an excellent example of um, a market that's right there in my area that supplies fresh foods and often organic foods. That's every Saturday at the market on the 1800 block of Pennsylvania Avenue. Yes, yeah. yes. And um, so uh, that that is something that, that needs to be done. You know, um, it needs to be more regulations on what kind of foods can be carried in a corner store. Um, there should be more healthy options there. It should be mandatory. You know, um, and we have a lot of grocery stores that are closing up. We have stores like Target that were there and then they left. You know, so um, we have options that are leaving. As far as with health, it's not just food, though. In West Baltimore, we experience mass demolition that's going on in every block and um, concern about the environmental pollutants and what that means for the community, you know, for elders and for youth. You mentioned the work that you do with kids at this farm. Talk about this time that you spend with those kids through your programs, where they're at in terms of their understanding of their own health and diet, and, and like what they stand to learn when mm-hmm. in the time that they spend with you and on that farm. I've been very fortunate that the, um, the majority of the youth, um, at least 50%, are graduates from our first year. So we've been able to build on their knowledge base, on their understanding year after year after year. And it's excellent seeing their growth. What it does for you, for a child, is when they learn about agriculture, they literally learn how to broaden their horizon and look at different options. They look at the food. They look at growing food, not just with putting your hands in the dirt, playing with insects and growing food. All that's fun, you know, but they're literally feeding their community for free. Um, because this farm has been up until this year all nonprofit, um, not a nonprofit entity, but free for the community to pick as well. So when the youth come out there and actually transform a vacant lot that was filled with trash and debris, they transform into a beautiful community garden with flowers and food that people need because we grow the food that people want. Um, that's empowerment. And it gives the youth a sense of pride and ownership and the community a sense of ownership of this space, which was once just a vacant lot, you know, cast aside. Um, so the youth, they are able to take those lessons and apply it to everywhere. 
apply to school because once a youth finds out that they can build a raised bed box and they learn how to use tools safely and they can do the mathematics of how many plants get planted in a raised bed box and they're able to do those sorts of things, it helps them all across the board. Yeah, there's like a, a health awakening. There's a there's like a science awakening. And I imagine along the way, there's probably some element of a political awakening as well in terms of being able to take the means of production into your own hands. It is. It is. It's very political. Growing food is one of the most political things you can do, um, doing exactly what you said. But it's also reclaiming culture because a lot of these youth their families that come from agrarian cultures and um, getting back to embrace that in a whole new way, embracing and using easier means, embracing and using new technologies and ancient technology. And it is also a spiritual aspect of it because it's a de-stressor. You are able to come there, work in the soil, cultivate plants and understand the communication of plants. Through that, they've gained patience and they're able to apply that to their peers, to their families and their relationships. Yeah, it can be really therapeutic to work in the ground. I used to work at a school for emotionally disturbed kids in Chicago, and they had a horticulture therapist come in, and these kids, it was a locked residential facility, but their, I mean, it was like their favorite couple hours of the week to just be out in a garden and just the sort of psychological kind of connecting with just digging around in dirt is is huge for young minds. It is, it is. And... When it's not just growing food for, for follies, you know, you're, you're doing this, but then you're able at the end of the day to carry some kale and greens back home to your family. And you have a recipe. You just learned how to cook this meal at the farm on a hot plate. Now you're able to take this back home and integrate it into your daily routines, you know, and you're able to see the impact and health and vitality in your family. It makes it very, very productive, very relevant. And you have kids along the way who are learning how to cook. They are learning how to cook. So, you know, that's a science of cooking, you know. Um, and Great th- job market for chefs, too. Yes, yes. And that's another, we're, we're trying to create jobs, you know, but it's not just the growing the food. Because when you're doing this, um, it's marketing and growing food. It's marketing. Um, advertisement. Um, you have to have mechanical skills for certain things. You know, we have to get this food from point A to point B. We have to build structures, rainwater catchment systems, you know, solar panels. You know, they learn, they're learning these things, you know, so they're able to take these skills and um, hopefully it inspires them to look at those different areas where they want to focus, maybe th- where they want to have a career. Asar, I mentioned that you last year were an open science. Asar, I mentioned that last year you were among the uh, 2017 Open Society Institute Community Fellows. Um, how did that uh, sort of like uh, change or uh, enhance your ability to do what, what, what you've been doing? I'm very humble um, to, 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 uh, to receive that, that Open Society Fellowship. It allowed me to be able to do this work um, full time um, and focus a lot of my energy on this work instead of me doing my other jobs, self-employed. And um, so in doing so, it's allowed me to be able to create the partnerships to make the program even stronger. Um, in doing so, this summer I partnered with Yatiyari um, um, Summer Enrichment Camp, where I was able to, and that's in the Mondaman area, where I was able to teach horticulture and science to youth there during the week, and also partner with Jonah House, which is a Catholic worker group, this anti-war that is literally four blocks away from 
Tubman House, and they run this amazing food pantry every Tuesday, which I'm just coming from. And um, so we've partnered with them, and the same people who get fresh food from Tubman House can get those other foods from Jonah House, you see. And uh, that serves 160 people every Tuesday, and we have a whole community that comes down to the farm, so it covers it covers a larger base. I have no illusions about the food equity. This is not something that's going to solve all of our issues, but it is a start, and it does meet the basic needs of feeding people and educating the youth. I was going to ask you that, Asar. Like, what is your goal ultimately? The goal of GMEP, the Greater Mandaman Empowerment Project. When are, is there a moment when you're going to be able to say, like, I've succeeded? The ultimate goal is to plant those seeds in the young and the minds of the youth, the fertile minds of the youth, because this problem is not a problem that happened overnight. It didn't happen in a few years. This problem is is connected with redlining. It's connected with um, discrimination. It's connected with a whole line of issues that are much greater than what can be addressed in a very short period of time. However, when you inspire those youth to become leaders in their own community, then you literally have the, a collective power to change things. And that's what it's about. Solving the basic needs, the everyday needs that we need right now, but also planning for the future. You know, and through other partnerships with other people in the community, like No Boundaries Coalition, we spoke of with Jonah House or um, and GAITRA, all those things, and many other partners, um, we can literally start to move the needle and uh, kind of reclaim back our own dignity and reclaim this food sovereignty thing. Before I let you go, Asar, uh, is there any way folks can get involved? Uh, do you take volunteers uh, with your initiative, uh, donations? What can people do to help you? Yes, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, every Sunday we have a volunteer day at Tubman House from 12 to about 2 o'clock. Um, now that we're getting into the shorter day period and the weather permitting, you can go on Facebook and look for um, Tubman House Baltimore and you'll be able to follow us on Facebook and find the correct times. And you can go to a website where you can support Tubman House, which is supporting the initiative of the Greater Mount Dominant Power Project. And that's TubmanHouseBaltimore.org. And you will see a donate button on that page. Um, we're partners with Fusion, and um, we can take uh, donations there. But we also need things like shovels. We need seeds, seedlings. We need pots. We need gloves. You know, um, we need extra hands. So we have building projects over the over the winter time. So yes. Asar Daniels, 2017 Open Society Institute Fellow and founder of the Greater Mondawmin Empowerment Project. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Aaron Hinkin. You're tuned to Life in the Balance. And coming up after the break, we'll be joined by Kamala Green. She's Director of Health Promotion and Disease Prevention for the Baltimore City Health Department. We're going to talk about how living in a food insecure area can be detrimental to your health and how the city is trying to help. Stay with us.
Hi, I'm Aaron Hinkin. Welcome back to Life in the Balance. Today we're talking about food deserts and food inequity. And I want to welcome now to the program Kamala Green. She is Director of Health Promotion and Disease Prevention at the Baltimore City Health Department. She's here to explain what the city is doing and needs to be doing to support the vital relationship between nutrition and health. And uh, Ms. Green, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me this afternoon. I appreciate that. In your department, how do you spend your days? What are your goals? So our goals really are to increase healthy food options. Our real goal is to decrease chronic diseases. And we know from the Highland Towns all the way to Edmondson Village that we have lots of areas in between North and South that would be considered healthy food priority areas, but are also known for our high mortality rate of breast cancer, colorectal cancer, lung cancer, high rates of diabetes, and high rates of hypertension. And all of that goes back to our inability to produce healthy food options for our residents. And so each day we are convening to talk about how do we strategize, how do we bring the right stakeholders to the table to say, okay, what is it that we need to happen based on policy, strategy, and what can we do to change people's behaviors? We can implement lots of policies and implement lots of resources in the community, but what is it going to take for us to convince a resident that they need to change their behavior in order for them to be considered more healthy? So we look at a couple of different things. One thing is that we looked at is when we look at behavior change, are we offering healthy food education, but do we expose our residents to healthy foods? Mm. And so do we educate them on how to make a healthy food recipe? And so we've done that throughout some of our corner stores. We've done that in some of our public markets located around the city. We've done it at several uh markets around the city where we teach people that you can make certain recipes just differently that are healthier and less uh, intense on on processed foods and processed fats. Talk about what some of the most common chronic diseases are here in Baltimore. Our number one is heart disease. Mm-hmm. So we see lots of people who are having heart attacks, who are hypertensive, and that's due to a lack of physical activity as well as not eating properly. The second biggest is diabetes, which would come in where um Our type 2 diabetes is more prevalent than anything because we're not eating well, we're not exercising, our stress levels are high. And believe it or not, we come in at number three with lung cancer and colorectal cancer, which is all related to our diet and exercise and our choice of smoking. You say you have uh, interactions with citizens in Baltimore, helping them become more aware about their health. Talk about like uh, that baseline uh, self-knowledge health-wise of the average citizen in Baltimore. Like what vital knowledge gaps do you see a need to fill in? We see a vital role in knowing when it is time to even go to have a wellness visit. That is how baseline we are. Um, We see citizens that will say to us, I don't know when I should go to the doctor. I don't know that I need to go annually. Well, I I go when I feel like something is wrong with me, not prior and I'm not being proactive about my health. We see a baseline where people are literally 
checking themselves into the emergency room because that's their first line of immediately being reactive to symptoms that they may be having. And whether that's diabetes because I may not have enough money to pay for my medication or just symptomatology of breast cancer, lung cancer, colorectal cancer. Believe it or not, that's the baseline that we see is people don't know when to go to the doctor. We even have people who come up to us and say, oh, I didn't know that I could cook collard greens or kale differently than the way that I cook them now. And they taste great the way that we may have displayed it for them. So we really are talking about a basic knowledge of self-care and a basic knowledge of nutrition. And a lot of it is exposure and education. So we have to really start there. We have really started convening uh, community organizations. So our plan next year is to go through every community. I mean, we're going to treat the city in quadrants. So we're going to do north, south, east and west, and really talk to citizens about what they feel like we need to do in terms of education. Um, we have lots of resources in the in the communities around free screening programs for cancer. We have community health centers located around the city, so they would never be denied access to medical care, but our citizens don't know all of the resources and oftentimes cannot coordinate that care for themselves. As I hear the conversation around healthy food, it seems like you've got a real uphill battle and there's a there's a supply and demand scenario going on here where you've got uh, people who have got their habits of eating grape soda and barbecue chips because that's what they're used to and that's what tastes good. And you've got all the stores that sell that stuff because that's what people want to buy. You've got this, I mean, you've got capitalism, you've got sort of human nature. I mean, how do you, uh, I mean, this is a big ship to turn around, isn't it? It is a big ship to turn around. I think that it's going to take us a while to turn the ship around. I don't feel like it's impossible, though. I think that one line of defense is that we educate store owners and communities on healthy food options, and that's what our healthy stores programs do. They actually sit with store owners and say, okay, let's figure out what will sell in your store, because we realize that revenue is very important to a small store owner. So if bananas will sell, let's let's start with that. If potatoes will sell, let's start with that. But our first line of defense is always to go back to the community and ask them, okay, what is it that that we want to see in a corner store. And we did have those conversations with communities that they want to see that the corner store does offer apples and bananas and potatoes and green peppers and lettuce outside of maybe what we expect. So our goal really is to be able to get a corner store to be able to walk into one and make a complete healthy meal and less processed food. So we've moved from just wanting a store to go from healthy snacks, which we were instilling in them, like let's carry pretzels and nuts and low calorie popcorn and really getting the community educated on, you would much rather have the water than a sugary drink. And so here are your options. Or if you're gonna have a, sh- a sugary drink, let's have 100% fruit juice instead of having um, a soda or um, one of the other juices that are high in, in sugar. In the last segment of this program, I was talking with Asar Daniels about just how important it is to connect with kids when it comes to changing food habits, food culture. Um, talk about what sorts of food education programs you're offering through the city. 
We have one, and I just want to give one example, which I think is one of the most powerful examples of being able to educate children on food nutrition. We have a we partner with several youth organizations around the city, and one is located in South Baltimore, and they do a phenomenal job of teaching the kids how to prepare fruits and vegetables. And then those kids turn around and they have a health fair and they serve that food to the community. And I am always thankful for... Um, Intersection of Change, of South Baltimore Development Corporation, all of the organizations, You Empower, No Boundaries, they have all youth programs that really teach our children how to eat and how to eat healthy. And uh, they had grants through the health department that really assisted with educating the kids, and then the kids go and educate the community on what it is to eat healthy. And so all of them had to do a fair to really educate the entire community in which they're located on what it is to eat healthy. And it was just one of the most phenomenal things that I think that we do at the health department. We know that if we get the children to eat healthy, they will go home and convince their parents to eat healthy. And so we start the cycle of changing um unhealthy behaviors because we start with our children. On the other end of the age spectrum, you've got senior citizens. And I know mobility is a big issue when it comes to an area where there's not a lot of fresh food. Talk to me about um, the kind of precarious situation that seniors are in. And I guess you've got a You guys are working on some kind of virtual supermarket for seniors. So we have a virtual supermarket program where senior centers around the city, there's 14 of them that we work with. We actually partner with ShopRite uh, Market, and we have our seniors virtually order. So they can have whatever they choose. We have our order form broken down into what fruits and vegetables and, and meats and all the other things that they can order. And they go online, they submit their order, and they have it delivered to them. And so once a week, they get fresh fruits and vegetables and other things delivered to them. And we offer an incentive for them to order healthy foods. And so that program really does reduce some of our chronic disease, especially around diabetes and cancer. Uh, The best part of the program is that we also are able to offer them education around food nutrition as well as the other chronic diseases. So teaching them on when to have a screening, when to go to your doctor. Um, We also teach on tobacco sensation. We also offer flu shots because we want all of our senior centers to be really healthy. We're talking with Kamala Green, Director of Health Promotion and Disease Prevention at the Baltimore City Health Department. And um, you guys are uh, partnered up with this with a magazine as well called Chop Shop. Chop, talk, chop, talk about Chop an, Chop. Chop Chop. Chop Chop. It is a family magazine that offers recipes on healthy foods. Um, we have several opportunities to distribute those around the around the city. We use our WIC offices to distribute them to families, as well as we partner with a program called Produce and a Snap. Will McCabe uh, works with us, who does minimal, you can go to any one of those locations once a week and get a bag of fruits and vegetables for only $7. And inside of that bag, you will see a magazine that will normally talk about how you can prepare fruits and vegetables with your children. They offer very basic recipes that the whole family can participate in making. Uh, And their exposure, the exposure to children seeing different, how you're viewing fruits and vegetables. And that's what we love about about Chop Chop, but it is a partnership with Johns Hopkins University, Chop Chop Magazine, and Produce in a Snap. 
talk to me about how the city um, partners with uh, other uh, nonprofits and organizations to kind of, um, you know, uh, increase the momentum of what you guys are trying to accomplish. Um, what's what kind of red tape do folks have to go through with the city? What do you do to open your arms and as a city and 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 help folks like, uh, for example, Asar Daniels, who have got their own independent food security projects going on? So I think when I I acquired this role, one of my major priorities for this department was to really be a department that was driven by the community. And the first thing that I said to staff was we must be open to what the community wants from us. What is it going to take for us to partner and to do it well? Because oftentimes we are all from academia we are public health professionals, we work in silos, but this time we need to treat it differently because we know that chronic disease really is caused by the lack of education and, and having healthy food priority options. And so what we did was we started holding listening sessions. Um, and those listening sessions really do help us to understand how people want to partner with us. I, do people want to partner by hosting us to have um, workshops on food nutrition? Do people want to partner with us because we want to partner with a faith-based organization to set up a health ministry that then takes our information and gives it out to the congregation on Sunday mornings? Do we want to partner by having people supply some of our grocers with healthy foods? And so right now, that's what we're in the middle of discovering is how our department can better assist the citizens of Baltimore. And so we've been taking this listening tour around the city for the since the summertime, and we've been finding out all sorts of great ways to partner. And so one of them is that we partner, we have people come to the health department monthly to talk to us about how they would like to see us provide resources to communities. We didn't always do that in terms of chronic disease. So we now know that we have all these resources that we have to deploy, but now we have to figure out the best way to do that. So we are working with federally qualified health centers, um, which are all located um, centrally in Baltimore, and we are deploying those resources to those centers so people can walk in there and say, hey, I need to have a class for tobacco sensation or I need to learn how to manage my diabetes, whatever it is. Um, We're going to be working with those centers to be able to deploy resources that are most needed. Well, I salute you for those uh, listening efforts and those collaborations. If folks do want to collaborate, partner with the city on health initiatives, how do they get in touch with you? They can call me at 410-545-7544. Kamala, uh, Kamala Green, Director of Health Promotion and Disease Prevention at the Baltimore City Health Department. Thank you so much for being with Thank us today. Thank you for having me. I'm Aaron Hinkin. You're tuned to Life in the Balance on WYPR. Coming up after the break, we're joined by two authors of the 2018 Baltimore City Food Report. They're going to explain to us the reality behind the statistics and what needs to change if we're going to ensure that Baltimoreans have equal access to nutritious food. That's coming up. Stay with us.
Hi, I'm Aaron Henkin. Welcome back to Life in the Balance. Today on the show, we've been talking about food inequity. The poorest neighborhoods in Baltimore are also the neighborhoods with the least access to healthy food. The relationship between nutrition, health, and well-being has an enormous impact on communities. To get the big picture on Baltimore City's food landscape, we're joined now by Holly Freistadt, Food Policy Director for Baltimore City, and Caitlin Misiazic. Program Officer with Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health's Center for a Livable Future. They partnered together to co-author Baltimore City's Food Environment 2018 report. Welcome both of you to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Caitlin, let me start with you. Tell us about this report. What metrics were you using? Uh, What were you trying to understand and what did you learn? Sure. So the Center for a Liberal Future has been partnering with the Baltimore Food Policy Initiative for many years now to uh, assess the food environment in Baltimore City. And so the way that we do that is really focusing on four factors. Um, So we look at income, we look at vehicle access, we look at distance to a supermarket, and then the fourth one, which is our most unique factor, is looking at healthy food availability within all food retail across the city. And so we go out and we um, survey all food stores across the city, uh, looking at their availability of basically a market basket of staple healthy food items, Uh, looking at produce, looking at canned foods, looking at uh, different proteins and dairy, and scoring each of these stores to see what their healthy food availability looks like. And so that way we can kind of understand beyond just the supermarket landscape, what do some of these smaller food retailers, how do they play a role within the food environment? So we take these four factors, we layer them together using GIS or geographic information systems, and we create a final map, which is overlaying these different factors to see which areas meet our four criteria um, to become what we now call healthy food priority areas, what we used to call food deserts uh, previously. Yeah, there's been an important uh, evolution in nomenclature there. Yes. Is there a, what's the, the, the reasoning behind that? So I'll let Holly speak to that a little bit. Um, we did partner together on, you know, coming up with the idea of, you know, we do want to change this, but I think the city really led the way on coming up with that final term and, and what led to some of the uh, changes in the term food desert. Great. So the reason why we changed our name is a couple key factors. Is that One, we heard from the residents, and they were saying, you know, food deserts are not naturally occurring, right? They occur for a reason. Um, they're man-made. Um, it should not be assumed that they're naturally occurring and they can be changed. So that was one piece that we heard. Um, another piece is that we've been using the name food deserts because in the from the federal perspective, there was a lot of funding associated with food desert mapping and with healthy fresh food financing initiative. And so in the last administration, it was very much an asset to use those names to be able to help benefit Baltimore. Um, with the changing of the administration, there was no need to keep the name food desert. And so it's best to change a name, you know, using the residents to define and frame the story. So we're using a name, and I would say it's a very government-oriented name, Healthy Food Priority Areas, so that residents can speak to the issue themselves. So if they want to call it food apartheid, whatever issues they want to frame it, that there's space for them to call it what they need to call it. We just heard Caitlin talk about the metrics of putting this report together. Holly, talk about the takeaway. What, uh, What surprised you the most in your results? So this is the third time of doing our analysis. And each time we do the analysis, we go deeper into 
what does it mean and how can we use it? So the numbers are, there was a slight decrease in the number of people living in priority areas. Um, so approximately 23% of our population. We still know that seniors and kids are disproportionately impacted. We know that African Americans are more likely to live in um, a food priority area than not, and that is based off of population, so that's a proportion. Obviously, we're a majority black city. Um, and so when I really look at the takeaway messages, we went from the Food Environment Report and we then created a city brief and each of the 14 council district briefs and a legislative brief. And that is where we start to really use this information, how we brief every elected on their food environment, not just the data layer itself, but what's on top of it. All the corner stores, um, all the different um, supermarkets, all the different retail, all the summer meals, all the nutrition assistance programs and the urban ag. If we're going to make a change in the city, we have to look at it in a comprehensive way. Caitlin Misiasik, um, talk about uh, Baltimore's geography and map of the city areas that are most affected by food inequity. Sure. So when you look at the entire map of Baltimore City with the healthy food priority areas, you'll notice that they're the same areas that tend to come up when we're looking at things, uh, areas that have high crime or poor health outcomes. So these same areas um, you know, low income um, and low access and they're the same areas that come up with our healthy food priority areas. We know that this is a really complicated issue. Um, we know that there are multiple factors that affect people's eating behaviors and affecting food insecurity. And so we need to, as Holly said, tackle this from multiple perspectives and from multiple different uh, ways. So not only looking at food retail, but also looking at things like urban agriculture and farmers markets, uh, school programs, considering all of these different pieces of the food system um, and not just focusing on on one solution um, throughout the uh, in Baltimore City's food environment. Can I ask you um, what kind of interactions you have with store owners in various parts of the city when you go in asking your questions about what they have or don't have? Sure, yeah. So the process that we took was we would go into each of these stores and we would typically ask the store owner or the store employee, especially with the small corner stores. Um, you know, we would say we're doing a food environment assessment um, with Johns Hopkins um, and we'd like to take a look at just the food items that you have available. So really it was a quick survey. Um, it would last, you know, just a couple minutes. We would take a lap around the store, uh, check off on our list what kind of items were available, um, and then we would be on our way. Um, and we we probably had, you know, only about 15 to 20 store owners that said that they, you know, didn't want us to do that. And we went on our way. But most of them were very receptive um, and said that it was fine for us to take a look around. Um, We didn't necessarily have conversations with them on, um, you know, prices and different their interactions with residents. It was really just an assessment of the food items that they had available. Did you have conversations with them about their inventory and the rationale behind it i mean they're they're there to run a business make money and uh, you know it's sort of like a uh, free market and i mean i guess they have to decide what's going to sell and what's not going to sell Right. Um, I would say anecdotally, we had, you know, some conversations with store owners about the difficulties in uh, stocking things like fresh produce. Um, things would go, uh, would get rotten or wouldn't sell quick enough. Um, and then also distribution issues of not being able to have um, the same type of structure that a supermarket has in terms of getting that produce into their stores. And so there were definitely challenges that came up um, just talking with them as we went through their store um, in, you know, 
wanting to make sure that they, the, many of them did recognize the uh, the benefit of having healthy foods for their customers, but also had these challenges as well that they needed to make sure that they were addressing and, and to still be profitable in their business. Holly Freistadt, tell us a bit more about these food environment briefs uh, and how these have been used to impact local legislation. Sure. So what we know is that each of the council districts are unique of who is impacted, whether it's seniors or whether it's kids. It may vary about upon each council district. Um, so what we really want to be able to do is see that each elected can find their own place in impacting the food environment. For some, it's going to be around food retail. Um, so in 2015, and then it was just amended in 2018, we have a grocery incentive uh, tax credit. So if you are a grocery store and you exist currently and say you were to disappear, and you would create a food priority area, you would be eligible. If you were a new store going in, you would also be eligible. Uh, so with the leadership of the Baltimore Development Corporation, we did an amendment um, this past le legislative session um, to make it easier for stores that already exist to make renovations and to be able to qualify to continue to improve. So that was one piece that that legislation was introduced right after the 2015 report. Um, and then in 2018, we then, after this report, we then put the amendment. So that's one example of how we use this mapping. Um, another area that we've really looked at is around SNAP benefits, food stamps. Um, we always are tracking the numbers of whether they're going up or down, um, and how does that impact the city. SNAP's an economic driver. Um, so when SNAP goes down, um, and it may not be because of food insecurity, it could be just low enrollment for other circumstances, um, it does have an economic impact and also a personal health impact. So a lot of the work we're doing is also related to SNAP and the federal level um, and how it impacts Baltimore City. Um, so going back to why do we do it by council districts? Um, so food retail is one key piece. Um, nutrition assistance is vital. You know, it is something for immediate needs for right now. Nutrition uh, summer meals program, we rewrote the procurement contract to improve nutritional quality. We just rewrote the aging contract for congregate meals. Um, so these are all things that we do when we look at this map and look at where everything falls, um, going way bigger than just the data layer itself. Um, so one of the things that we also saw is around WIC. Um, this was a, really the first time we saw these findings um, that corner stores that have WIC have a 41% higher healthy food availability score than a store that doesn't. And if someone hasn't heard of WIC before, say what WIC is and have, what so the program is So it's Women, Infant, Children. Um, so it's a nutrition supplement program for pregnant women or women with young children under the age of five. And one of the things that we see is that we have 100 stores um, out of around 700 that have WIC. Um, and that was the, really the first time we saw this finding in this data layer and this map. So it makes us really think about how do we support the stores that currently have WIC? Um, and how do we support stores who want to become WIC certified or to be able to increase their stocking requirements? Caitlin, um, we talked at the beginning of this program with Asar Daniels, who's uh, a real champion of urban agriculture. Um, talk about uh, this report and whether it indicates any kind of positive effects in, in, in the way of like farmers markets, urban farming initiatives, et cetera. 
Yeah, so within the report, we do focus a lot on the actual uh, research analysis using those four factors that I mentioned previously. But at the end of the report, we make sure to highlight some of these other programs and other initiatives that are happening across the city to map those in relation to these healthy food priority areas. And so we do highlight things like urban agriculture sites across the city, community gardens, farmers markets, uh, to really show how those play a role. And so that even if the food retail environment is showing one thing, we can look at these other solutions and other programs that are happening across the city and really highlight how urban ag, you know, while it may not uh, replace a food retail, uh, a food retailer, it may still help a household's uh, personal um, food needs. It may also bring about community and social cohesion um, and also job training, educational opportunities. So it's wide and a uh, wide variety of uh, benefits that can come from programs like that. One more question for you, Holly. Uh, explain to us what the Resident Food Equity Advisors Program is. Sure. So based off of the 2018 Food Environment Report, it was very clear that we have a tremendous amount of small food retail, corner and convenience stores. And in general, they have a very low healthy food availability score. And so one of the goals of the healthy the Resident Food Equity Advisors is to provide a strategy and recommendations to the city on how to address um, corner and convenience store strategy from a comprehensive perspective, from what's inside the store to the feeling of outside the store of whether it is an asset to the community or if it feels like a liability to the community, whether it is an economic driver to the neighborhoods, um, whether there's good social relationships between the store owners and the community, and there's really a diverse response. And so with the resident equity advisors, that was our second cohort, and we selected one resident from each of the 14 council districts. And we met over seven meetings, and then we were able to, they gave us recommendations and key findings of how we can use their perspectives to help drive the policies on corner and convenience stores in the city. And so that was really based off of the data that we found, um, and then each of the residents, they were briefed on each of the topics, um, and then they were able to produce um, our, our report and recommendations to the city. So the Resident Food Equity Advisors will be meeting seven times on a monthly basis, starting in November and ending sometime around May. We've been speaking with Holly Freistadt, Food Policy Director for Baltimore City, and Caitlin Misiazic, Program Officer with Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health's Center for Livable Future. They partnered together to co-author Baltimore City's Food Environment 2018 report. Thank you both for your work, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Life in the Balance is an original production of WYPR. The program airs at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. on the first Wednesday of the month. Life in the Balance is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. You can listen to previous episodes online at wypr.org slash life in the balance. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Aaron Hinkin. Thanks for listening.